Today, Matt Kelly and I indulge in our joint love of history as we take a look at lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis in leadership and for the compliance professional. Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance. And you're in for a treat today because we're going to engage in a little historical storytelling for compliance into the weeds. So, Matt, uh, first of all, welcome. And uh, what has caught your eye around storytelling, history and compliance? Yeah. So, hi, Tom. Uh, Good to be here, as always. And this is about a uh, history book that I picked up the other day. This is newly published, uh, a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And it is written by a Ukrainian-born history professor who taught, I think, at Harvard for a while. He may still be there. His name is Sergei Polky, if I am pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and his book is called Nuclear Folly. Uh, about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which there have been many other books written about that already. But what is interesting about Polky's new book is that, number one, he has a lot of access to Russian, Cuban, and Ukrainian source documents. And Ukrainian is important because the Soviet premier at the time, Nikita Khrushchev, was Ukrainian. Uh, So he has access to all of these documents that, until now, a lot of Western historians have not seen. Uh, And also, rather than the usual historian uh, perspective of let's see everything that John Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev got right to prevent global nuclear war in 1962, he looks at what did they get wrong, where it is a miracle that this planet is still here and not just a radioactive cinder. And when you read the book, and if you're a history buff, I would recommend this book. Uh, There have been several points there where you have to wonder how did we get out of this enormous security threat back in October 1962? Uh, So that's the history part of it. But as I was reading it, uh, yet again, a big theme that came out was the importance of clear communication of risk and facts on the ground, literally on the ground in Cuba, um, facts on the ground. And when that does and doesn't happen, how large organizations then start to miscalculate and make mistakes, which is a lesson that I think should sound very familiar to a lot of compliance, audit, and risk professionals, where a misunderstanding in the senior office about what the situation really is leads them to go down all sorts of false trails, and they wind up with grossly inaccurate conclusions. And we see this in corporate governance all the time. So that's what I was writing about this week is teasing out some of the lessons in this book about the Cuban Missile Crisis that actually have a lot of relevance to corporate governance today. So what you found, Matt, uh, and of course, Matt blogged about this, and we're going to link to this in the show notes. But there was a gentleman, military aide to Khrushchev called Sergei Birozov, and he was sent on a mission by Khrushchev to obtain certain information or, as you would say, facts on the ground. How did the culture 
of the Soviet Union actually influence his, not simply his investigation, but his reporting leading to perhaps a miscalculation by Khrushchev. So here's what happened. Khrushchev's strategy all along had been, we are going to get the missile components into Cuba in the middle of 1962, July through September. We're going to get the missile components in. We're going to hide them in the Cuban jungle and put them together under cover of night. And then when the missiles are all complete, we will suddenly pop up to the world and to John Kennedy is saying, ha ha, we have nuclear missiles right on your doorstep. They're all ready to go. You can't get them out anymore. And we don't want you to invade Cuba. And look at me, Khrushchev, I am the socialist leader of the world. That was his grand scheme with why would we put missiles into Cuba? But a big part of that then was that the missile components would need to be hidden in the jungle while we're putting them together. Because if they were found before they were ready, before the missiles were fully assembled, the Americans could jump up and say, no way, stop, you're not gonna do that. And then off to the races we go. So this was a really important thing for this Sergei Berizov, I think his name is. Uh, his job was to go and scout locations in the jungle. Where are we gonna put the missiles so that we can assemble them under cover of jungle canopy and darkness? And he found that actually, there was nowhere in Cuba that he could do that. In places where the jungle was thick enough uh, for various other reasons relating to weather and heat and humidity, you couldn't put a missile launch pad there in the thick jungle. Where you could put a missile pad that it would work, there were only a few palm trees around and then US spy planes would pick them up immediately that these things are being built, we have to intercept. So he had no good answer for Khrushchev about where we could build these missiles and where to build them was critical. So what did Mr. Borisov do? He lied. And he said, oh yeah, sure, man, place looks great. Bring them all in. And then uh, because of that, the US surveillance planes promptly found the missiles being constructed and then came the Cuban Missile Blockade and then came a whisker away from thermonuclear destruction before Khrushchev and Kennedy finally reached a resolution. But all of it sprang from, wait for it, compliance officers, a mid-level executive did not want to speak up to senior management about a situation that management wouldn't want to hear. How often have we encountered this in the corporate world? All the time. Uh, And we can get into some of the cultural aspects about why that was the case. But ultimately, this was a question of speak up culture in the Soviet Union wasn't functioning. So they just made it up. And when they made it up, they made up a pile of baloney that wasn't real. And then suddenly Khrushchev was building his strategy on a pile of sand, and that led to the miscalculations into the Cuban Missile Crisis. But Matt, this story is not simply one of a failure of communication, a failure of speak up. We also had an example of a more successful speak up and a more successful, robust discussion by the Americans, uh, President Kennedy and XCOM. Could you Mm -hmm. tell us, uh, could you contrast that difference for us? Yeah, sure. So Uh, The Americans discovered there are missiles. Oh, crap. We need to figure out what to do about this without getting the world blown up. And Kennedy had numerous considerations. So if he invaded Cuba, the Soviets would either respond probably by attacking West Berlin or then you have crises in both places that quickly escalates to thermonuclear missiles flying around the world. 
Um, or what if they are wrong and the, some of the missiles were live, which, by the way, some of the missiles were. And you invade to get the missiles out and they use the missiles instead. And if a missile targets the mainland, then Kennedy would have about five minutes from the launch until destruction somewhere on the U.S. coast. So these are all the variables he and his people are trying to unravel. What's the best thing to do? Um, but they knew they couldn't leave the missiles in there. So Kennedy and his brother, Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general, uh, they formed this executive committee of his senior diplomatic and military advisors. And the XCOM met night and day for probably, I think it was 13 days. That's the title of Robert Kennedy's book, uh, where they evaluated the options that the president could pursue. And oddly enough, at the start of it, the president was the one who said, we have to invade and we have to invade right now. And the XCOM uh, tried to debate through, is that really the best thing to do? Uh, because we could wind up with a nuclear exchange. And over the course of the 13 days, they bounced these ideas back and forth. And Polky's book goes into all sorts of examples of people looking at the president and telling him to his face, Mr. President, we shouldn't do this that you want to do, or Mr. President, you don't understand that, or we think that this is the better option. Very frank discussions uh, that ultimately led to, by the end of it, Kennedy had flipped around his position where numerous military people wanted to invade, and Kennedy said, no, we are not going to invade. We are going to basically cut a deal where the missiles would be removed, uh, the U.S. would promise not to overthrow the Castro regime in Cuba, so it would be a socialist country right on our doorstep. And then as a side deal, several months later, we would remove our own nuclear missiles from Turkey, which Khrushchev was not a fan of, and Kennedy didn't necessarily want them there anyways. They were outdated missiles. Uh, so we wound up getting the missiles out, U.S. not invading. U.S. taking our own missiles out of uh, Turkey instead. And all of that came about because of a much more robust discussion in the United States. Over in Soviet Union, uh, they were just listening to Khrushchev and doing whatever he said. And out of his entire Politburo and little coterie of aides and uh, you know brown nosers, frankly, uh, there was only one very senior Soviet statesman who had been through the revolution with Lenin who could speak truth to Khrushchev to say, this probably isn't a good idea, we shouldn't do it. And they more tolerated him rather than listened to him. And they just did whatever Khrushchev wanted, and they told Khrushchev what he wanted to hear. And we had the opposite going on in Washington, and the results are history. So a couple of footnotes to that I'd like to throw in. The um, uh, Kennedy sought the counsel of uh, former President Eisenhower, also retired General Eisenhower. And he, uh, Eisenhower said he would not comment on the decision. What he wanted to know was the process. And so Kennedy described the process which led to the ultimate decision. And Eisenhower approved the process. Yeah. And I always thought that was a prescient view of things that uh, uh, certainly uh, General uh, who invaded Europe and basically won the war for the Allies, at least on the Western Front, then became president. And he was not concerned about the decision. He was concerned about the process. And once yeah. he was comfortable with the process, uh, that's what he told Kennedy, uh, basically said, you know, go forth as you have, have determined. 
Uh, the second thing is um, I recently watched the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, and uh, that was exactly what led to the disaster at Chernobyl, what you've described in the Soviet decision making, which is that <clears throat> there is one view and that view will not be uh, moved. And it started with the actual floor manager in Chernobyl who refused to believe that the readings he was being given by the engineers were so off the charts uh, on a particular test they were running. And then when that exploded, uh, when the ex explosion happened, he even denied there was an explosion. Then it went up to the plant manager who said, well, nothing could have happened. I wasn't at the plant. Couldn't be my fault. Um, and then that went to the regional manager. I went to the agency they reported to. I went all the way up to the Politburo where uh, there was finally one scientist who said, we have a problem here. And uh, it led to hundreds of thousands of deaths and numerous tragedies. But it was exactly that type of failure to uh, allow for any kind of discussion, which directly led to the ongoing disaster and probably the initial uh, explosion as well. But the, uh, the process, um, the XCOM process has, has been, I think, fairly well documented, at least in the West. Mm -hmm. And it shows a very robust discussion. As you said, people telling the president, no, he was wrong and, and they were right, but ultimately coming to a consensus. Would that be your assessment? Yeah, I, I have two thoughts here. First, on the actual XCOM process that Kennedy had set up, it's worth noting that almost immediately Kennedy understood for the XCOM to work well, he had to get out of there. So he was not present for most of their deliberations because he didn't want to be that uh, gravitational center that would pull all of the other discussion out of its natural orbit. So Robert Kennedy was the one who often ran those and uh, he would then report back into Kennedy who finally showed up at the end or from time to time. But Kennedy was, was not like the leader of it. He was more aware that it was happening and existing to give him some advice. But what strikes me about the differences between the American system and the Soviet system is that the leaders in America had institutionalized a speak up culture. That was the value that they wanted to emphasize so that you could speak truth to the president and then let him or maybe someday in the future her. But the president, ultimately, he's the one who makes the decision, but he gets the best and frank, most frank advice and opinion available. The Soviet ones, on the other hand, the Soviet culture uh, cultivated a whatever the opposite of speak up culture is, I guess the silence culture. And if you look at it from the perspective of that military aide, Berizov, what did he see? Well, he served in World War II in the Soviet Union, and he watched Stalin kill millions of his own people in the 30s and 40s, just for whatever reasons. Um, he saw Khrushchev, who he was his boss. Uh, Khrushchev and his other henchmen had executed the successor to Stalin in the early 50s, so Khrushchev could take over. You're gonna speak truth to power to that kind of a guy after that experience? Your whole cultural milieu and your whole organizational culture in the Soviet Union, it didn't value speaking up, it valued keeping quiet so you could save your own behind. Uh, whereas in the West, we had, you know, I, I believe Kennedy was a good leader, although his tenure was cut short when he was shot in 1963. But I would actually look at it more as the leaders, uh, say, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, who specifically said, you do not take an oath to me, you take an oath to the country, to all of his aides. Uh, presidents like Harry Truman, 
they were always the ones who set up the mechanisms for a good speak up culture and they institutionalized it so that by the time a crisis emerged in 1962, Kennedy could immediately rely on a culture that valued speaking, giving frank but respectful advice to the president. And that was really what saved the worlds behind in 1962, um, as opposed to what was going on in the Soviet Union, where ultimately the only saving grace was when Khrushchev finally realized he was in a nightmare situation. He could say, I want out. There was nobody there who was going to say, no, you can't get out. They just all they did was say, yes, boss, all the way through. Um, but it is striking to see the role that a speak up culture plays and how the leadership over many years can either emphasize and cement that culture into place or they can demolish it and pave it over so it doesn't exist which is, I think, what we saw in the Soviet Union, clear up right through the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. And I, I think still to this day, what's going on in Russia. Um, but it, there's a lot of lessons there that you can glean from this book about the missile crisis. So Matt, we had a comment come in from a podcast fan. Ben Lockwin has said, probably why General Eisenhower said the plan is nothing, planning is everything. Planning is as a verb when it matters. So what could the compliance practitioner, oh, before we get to perhaps some lessons learned, yeah. um, there's a recent uh, new biography of JFK out, which focuses on his time up until his election to the Senate. So his war service, his educational background, his um, running and uh, being elected to Congress, um, uh, and um what do you think was in Kennedy's character that allowed um, for that sort of robust debate? You've talked about really an institutional practice, but was could we even go further back to say this was a U.S. military practice because he was a serving naval officer, uh, famously in PT-109? Uh, was it uh, some work in, in Congress? He really had no business experience up mm -hmm. until uh, his presidency. Or uh, is it really uh, just the institution of the presidency itself had uh, formalized this type of process? Well, that's a good question. I'm not up uh, on my history as much as I should to give it a thorough answer. I know that in my humble opinion, having read biographies of Harry Truman, I think Truman did a lot to cement the institutions uh, around the White House and the advisors there to set up processes and uh, that would cultivate this sort of a speak up culture. Like everybody can say we are in favor of speaking up and they might be able to glad hand people on a personal level to get them to talk frankly. Truman was one president who basically built a fixed structure so that anybody who was in the White House would get that sort of frank discussion. That's something that Truman had valued. Uh, I do think that uh, by dint of Kennedy serving in the military, not necessarily as a high-level officer, but as a commander of a PT boat. He certainly had the perspective of, you know, what great men decide way up above can be a life-or-death thing for innocent people like my crew here on the PT boat. And he had that perspective in it. Oddly enough, the book did go into some detail about how Kennedy at the time was actually very fearful of looking like a weak leader. And not that he was engaging in the missile crisis and the blockade as a bit of bravado. He understood the seriousness of it. But he also understood that public sentiment thought that uh, Khrushchev was a more senior statesman 
and was kind of able to bully around this young new world leader. And there was a certain amount of Kennedy understanding he had to stand up to Khrushchev now because every single time it was getting worse and worse. And this is where the line had to be drawn. Um, Oh, one other point I wanted to bring up, Tom, since somebody had wrote in that Eisenhower said the plan is nothing, planning is everything. Uh, just last year, as I was talking with corporate board directors about the pandemic and how to cope with that and business continuity plans, I will always remember one uh, audit committee member at a data services company who told me the business continuity plan doesn't serve you any purpose except to show you what you didn't plan for when the disaster actually strikes. But the business continuity plan trains you to make plans. And that's what matters when the crisis strikes. And that audit committee member basically was saying the same thing Eisenhower said. So there, there's a lot of good wisdom in that advice. So, Matt, can we maybe distill a few, one, two, or even three lessons for the CCO, the compliance professional who may have a coterie of people either working with him or for him, uh, to get through uh, the day-to-day policies, issues, or even crises that might pop up? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think of it more in terms of not the CCO, but frankly, the CEO. And maybe you're the CEO of your compliance function if you want to view it that way. But really, it is just so much about how you, the leader, can communicate to your lieutenants, whoever they are, the importance of the mission and the organization and the values that underpin what the organization does. And Tom, you and I have talked in the business world, there's that book out there, Good to Great, which I also recommend, even though it's 20 years old now, uh, that looks at businesses that have been around for a long time and then achieved greatness later. They didn't come out of the gate as a whiz-bang startup, uh, but what was it that led them to go from being a good company to a great company uh, it's always about the leadership and the best leaders are the ones who put the company first and who value getting frank information and tell people that is the most important thing that you can give me is good advice, not give me supplication and brown nosing and telling me my ideas are wonderful. Um, I can't remember if it was another CEO. I don't know if it was Steve Jobs or Richard Branson, but one of them out there said, it's not my job to be the smartest one in the room. It's my job to hire the smartest people in the room and then to do what those things, what those people recommend to me and decide what to do. It's a lot of it is that it's just about good leadership and good leadership is underlining the importance of a strong culture and strong ethical values in the furtherance of the organization's mission. That's what you have to focus on. I suppose that's true whether you're the department head or the CEO or the president or any other leader, but uh, that's what sticks out to me. Matt, I think that's a great note to end on. This has been a lot of uh, fun to have a real lesson from history uh, that we could talk about as a real lesson. So I look forward to seeing what we come up with next week. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. We're going to link to Matt's blog post on this topic in our show notes. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email Tom at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I would urge you to check out some of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. We have a great series from Mikhail Ryder-Gordon on the Wirecard Saga. This week on the Compliance Life, we have the final episode from Jonathan Kellerman. The Compliance Into the Weeds podcast is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you for listening.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.